It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, August 15th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking to Vice News journalist Elle Reeve about her experience embedding with white supremacists and where the alt-right movement stands one year after Charlottesville. This Sunday marked the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where hundreds of white nationalists marched holding torches and yelling hateful chants, and where a counter-protester named Heather Heyer was killed and dozens were injured. On the anniversary of this event, a small group of Unite the Right proponents decided to march in Washington. And the reaction was revealing. Today I sat down with Elle to talk about Sunday's rally and the current state of white nationalism. Elle covered the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a year ago for Vice News, and she received a Peabody Award for her work. What was Sunday's rally like? What was the turnout of white supremacists in D.C. versus counter-protesters who showed up? And, and what was the scene like? So there were between 20 and 25 white nationalists there. There was also an African-American man who said he was a free speech advocate who was with Jason Kessler, who organized this event. They were massively outnumbered by the police protecting them, and then even more massively outnumbered by counter-protesters. There were the black-clad Antifa types. There were, you know, gay pride people who were dancing away white supremacy. I mean, it was just a massive, massive turnout. A lot of people wanted to honor Heather Heyer, the woman who was killed a year ago in Charlottesville. So Jason Kessler and the White Nationalists, they still got on stage. They still gave little speeches. Kessler said that there wasn't much of a rally because of infighting within the alt-right movement. And then they got rained out and went home. What do you think that their tiny turnout signals or means for the state of white nationalism? You need to look at it both in terms of the specific and then in general. So specifically, Jason Kessler, he organized the Unite the Right rally last year. He's been working to organize the anniversary one for many, many months and has largely failed. And that's important because Jason Kessler managed to be this kind of huge figure in the eyes of outsiders kind of by luck. At least that's according to my reporting and talking with other white nationalists. There had been a small flash mob in Charlottesville many months before the Unite the Right rally in which people had shown up with torches. And a lot of people saw that online and they wanted to be part of it. So many, many figureheads started getting on board with the 2017 rally and it just kind of blew up so that there were some 800 white nationalists that day. But it got much bigger than Kessler was able to manage. He 
had all these fights with organizers going into it. Afterwards, he got in many fights with other alt-right figures because, for example, he held a press conference the day after uh, against their wishes alone and was almost devoured by a mob. So starting about April, other white nationalist figures started saying, don't go to Charlottesville, don't follow Jason Kessler, like he doesn't know what he's doing. In the meantime, every major figure who was in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville is being sued in federal civil court by very high-powered lawyers. And in the process of that suit, they are being deposed. Jason Kessler gave a deposition which he was seen to have given away secrets of other alt-right organizers. So that made it even worse. So what does that all add up to? You know, now white nationalists sort of distance themselves from Kessler, saying he's not trustworthy. But it says something about that movement that they ever put their faith in him in the first place. And that happened because there's a small talent pool. It's a growing movement, but it's still relatively small. And also it's an anonymous movement, which means that we don't know who they are, which makes them scary, but they don't know who each other are either. And they don't know who's competent, who is strong, who can withstand the blowback from the public after doing an event like Charlottesville. It also seems like so much of this movement is based on a kind of white male insecurity. What role do you think that played in Sunday's low turnout? What I mean by that is if they knew they were going to be so massively outnumbered, then they also knew that that would make them look weak, small, not powerful, not strong, that it kind of was going to go against their whole brand of white male power. What role did that play in white supremacists choosing to not show up on Sunday in Washington, D.C.? That sort of machismo is a huge part of it, and I feel like an underappreciated part of it. Most of these guys get radicalized, not starting with racial stuff, but with women. They start off with misogyny. Chris Cantwell, the man I interviewed in our documentary last year, He was a libertarian in the free state movement, and then he started feeling like all these feminists were infiltrating the libertarian movement, and he rejected that. And first he started looking at supposed biological differences between men and women's brains, and from there moved on to this sort of fraudulent racial science. So the masculinity thing is a huge part of it. After Charlottesville and after several other events, They had all these furious debates among themselves about what they call optics. And that all comes down to whether they're good looking in public, whether they're overweight with tiny little helmets that look silly in public, or whether they look like strong, handsome men. There's a term that's been popularized because of the violence among incels and voluntary celibates called Chad. It's this mythical man who's good-looking, kind of Aryan, gets all the women. His full name is Chad Thundercock. This is an archetype in alt-right subculture. And they want to present themselves as Chad nationalists. So they, like, work out. They do the paleo diet. They want to be seen in public as, like, the GQ model who's also racist. And what does it mean to actually embed with white nationalists? What does that entail? Can you kind of spell it out for us and and tell us a little bit about what that experience has been like for you? And how have you kept enough trust from that community to keep doing your reporting after coming out with your Charlottesville documentary, which shed them in such a negative light? 
Yeah, I've been covering these guys for a while now, since I've, I think I've been watching 4chan, which is kind of the heart of it, since 2015. So well before Charlottesville, I was kind of a known quantity. Like, they recognized my face. They'd done research about me. They knew who I dated. So that was already an element. I don't know. It, it It's this very strange dynamic, to be honest. Like, they know who I am, so sometimes that means they're more likely to take my questions. Other times it means they won't talk to me. They'll cut me off. Jason Kessler, for example, has blocked me on Twitter. So before Charlottesville, you know, I called a bunch of people to see if someone would, you know, let us interview them while there, and Chris Cantwell said yes. Securing those interviews is not pleasant. They are quite rude. Uh, sometimes they lie. Not all of them. I wouldn't include Cantwell in this, but there are others who think lying to reporters is a good strategy for pushing their movement forward, and they do so shamelessly. Um, so that's very difficult. But yes, they're rude to me, and I just let that wash over me. Like, okay, let's like talk logistics. Like, we're going to meet here. We're going to talk this long. There'll be two cameras, that kind of thing. It's really complicated to represent this stuff. You don't want to elevate, for example, the eugenic stuff. We don't want to put that on camera. So you want to represent what they believe fairly without, you know, letting them hype it up too much. Your documentary that came out last year about Charlottesville got a lot of acclaim. How do you think the rest of the media landscape is doing covering this topic and covering sort of the rise of white nationalism today? And what do you think that people get wrong about this group? This isn't an easy subject to cover because by covering this subject, you are signing up for a world of shit. Like people will go after you. Trolls will go after you. You also get an incredible amount of criticism because like there's just so much emotion around this issue that like the white nationalists themselves can't hold it all. And it gets projected onto the journalists who cover them. So it's like very unpleasant. <laughs> but I think because they're scary and because they're anonymous, we tend to think that they're playing 3D chess, that they're much better at calculating all their next moves. You see so many tweets and so many articles that are like, oh, the media is playing into their hands. But like, they're not that with it. Like, they're not like all knowing, omniscient, like genius strategists, right? There's so much focus on like outmaneuvering them and it, you just can't do that. You just have to like cover what's happening. Like, for example, I saw Jason Kessler covered as this guy who had a lot of stuff planned, you know, as like this like dangerous looming figure. And he is dangerous, but he's not not in that way. According to court filings, he allegedly has had only two jobs for five months stints in the last seven years. He's had multiple arrests, including for shoplifting. He's not a guy who super has it together. You just have to be careful to make sure you're asking all the right questions. I mean, New York Times got a huge amount of blowback for covering this guy. People think of us as the Panera Nazi. The piece was all about how he's a normal guy. And I understand the reason why the reporter wrote it that way, because that's the thing that shocks you the first time you start covering these people is that they're not Hannibal Lecter. They're not that different from normal people, except they believe these like terrible things. And people are often in denial about that because you want to imagine that the evil racists are somewhere else far away in some state you haven't been to. And they're that way because they're like poor or uneducated. 
But that isn't always the case. They're often from New Jersey. They often went to prep schools. They're often very tech savvy and media savvy. And so the difference between your expectations and reality can lead you to writing articles that don't always serve the public. But that said, like any journalist who covers this is signing up for a world of shit. And so, you know, even if every piece isn't always to my liking, like I, I would cut them some slack. So some of the dysfunction that you're describing, we can see in moments like Sunday's rally where they had such a tiny turnout. But there's sort of a whole world happening online for this community that we can't necessarily see. And you're really embedded in that. What is it like? What's happening online? Yeah, so we can see some of it, but not all of it. So much of this world involves very, very young people, usually men, spending massive numbers of hours online. And they do so in places like Discord, which is a gamer site where you can talk in voice or text. And there's also a site called Tiny Chat where you can do video, voice, or text. And these guys will just sit around and hang out in these chat rooms for hours and hours and hours, and they're kind of addicted to it. And that's where some of the radicalization happens, where they share these ideas that, uh, you know, about the biological inferiority of everyone but them. And that still exists. But right now, it just poses too much risk to take that energy into the real world. Because, like, if you show up at a white nationalist rally and you show your face, Antifa's going to find you. They're going to find your name, where you live. They're going to find your employer. And you're probably going to lose your job. You know, for the rest of your life, you're going to be followed with that tag. And they know that. And that really limits their physical presence. It's a very intense job to be a reporter covering this topic and embedding yourself in the white nationalist community online, offline. How did you decide to report on this in the first place? I was looking at this other story, and I happened to be on 4chan when this Microsoft chatbot came out, and it was supposed to be on Twitter, and it was supposed to learn how to talk like a person. It had this, uh, it was called Tay, and it was supposed to be in the voice of a young woman. And 4chan figured out in like 18 hours how to turn her into a Nazi. And I happened to be on 4chan that day reporting on another story, and I was just watching this, and it was so crazy how the hive mind worked and moved and they fed into each other and it had this crazy energy. It just seems so different to me and so much bigger than I had anticipated. I mean, I'm from the South. I'm not shocked that racism exists. I've known about that my whole life. I've seen it my whole life. I've heard it my whole life. But I hadn't seen this kind of organization. And that's how I got into it. And I just kept pitching stories on it. But like, it just seems so important to me. I couldn't let it go. Yeah, and it's really taken you down this dark and windy path. Yes. I mean, you've, you've gone really deep into this topic. Have you ever felt scared? Um, more often felt creeped out. It's just like this strange phenomenon where like they respond to me where like the whole subtext is like, you are woman, 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 woman. I've gotten pictures of Nazi genitals sent to me. Um, I'm able to look at this stuff with an emotional distance, but still when you look at the sum total of it, it's like there's so much rage out there. You're just hit sometimes with like the weight of this like massive scale of misogyny and racism. It's just creepy. It's just like gross. 
another element of it is like a lot of these guys have messed up lives and like reporters are often criticized for humanizing them but they are human and like you look at how they live and it's hard not to think like man if like you just had some different breaks made some different choices like you wouldn't think this way and that's also like tough to deal with with the alt-right world as well as the involuntary celibate world i've just been introduced to this sort of pool of people who feel alienated by society and that has led them to believe really terrible things you've talked a lot about the current state online offline sunday's protest where do you see this movement heading in the future? What are their plans as far as you know? And what's your analysis as a reporter? Mm -hmm. We interviewed Chris Cantwell about this. And he said a good goal for them would be for 100 armed Nazis to be able to show up spontaneously in a park without anyone being aware of it in advance, have a little demonstration, and then disappear. And all that sounds really scary. What it boils down to is a flash mob of 100 people, which is quite a step down from an announced rally of 800 that we saw last year. So what they're trying to do is create their own secure communications networks and their own way of exchanging money. Right now, they can only use Bitcoin reliably. They also want to influence the general culture and politics. They have this concept called shifting the Overton window. That means changing the parameters of the political debate. So what was once forbidden becomes fringe, and what was fringe becomes mainstream. You know, So they want to keep pulling it to the right, keep pulling it in the racist direction so that being a little racist is acceptable and being a lot racist is like a little out there but more okay than it is right now. And I don't know actually how they plan on doing that at the moment. So... As much as they're on their heels, they're still strategizing about how to move forward. Thank you so much for this interview, and thank you for your reporting. It's been really informative. Of course. Thank you so much. To follow Al Reeves' reporting, make sure to check out Vice News. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.